This is a download from Reunions Weekend 2008 at the University of Virginia. 80% of the world's population uses traditional and indigenous medical practices for an important part of health care. Increasingly, Americans are seeking the same techniques as supplements to their own care. Dr. Ann Gill Taylor is the director of the Center for the Study of Complementary and Alternative Therapies at the University of Virginia. And in this lecture, she describes some of the studies currently underway at the center. Again, my name is Maurice Salina, and I'm the Assistant Vice President of Development at the School of Nursing. And it is my pleasure today to welcome you all back to Reunions 2008 and to the seminar that we, you are about to have with Dr. Ann Gill Taylor, Alternative Procedures in Medicine at EBA. Um, before we begin our seminar, I'd like to ask two things. One is if you can make sure that your um, cell phones are silenced or put in vibrate, that would be fantastic. And also, just as a reminder, if you can fill out the two evaluation forms that we have, that would be really helpful to us as we're doing feedback for upcoming reunions. All right, it is now my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Ann Gill Taylor. Dr. Taylor is the Betty Norman North Professor of Nursing and a clinical researcher at UVA's health system. She founded and directs the Center for the Study of Complementary and Alternative Therapies, therapies which we affectionately uh, call CSCAT here at the university. The center was established in 1995 as one of the original NIH-funded interdisciplinary centers to stimulate research in complementary and alternative medicine. Dr. Taylor has received a research award from the National Cancer Institute and brings her combined skills and knowledge to clinical research training of both pre- and postdoctoral students. The trainees participate in CSCAP research studies that include those Dr. Taylor will be talking with you about today. And I would also like to mention to you that Dr. Taylor is celebrating her reunion year here as well, having graduated from the School of Nursing in 1963 with her BSN degree, and also from the Curry School of Education in 1975 with her EDD. So we are especially appreciative of your time here during this reunion weekend. Well, thank you so much. It, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I will tell you, I have not been to my office this week or since last Friday, um, about um, two hours, about five o'clock last Friday, because I have had the extreme pleasure of being in one of Darden's executive institutes over the past week. And so, an hour ago, I left there to come here. So it's been an exciting week. But one of the things that they told us there is, don't use PowerPoint slides. And I said, oh my goodness, I'm leaving this building and I'm going to a presentation where I'm going to be using PowerPoint slides. So we're going to um, save enough time so that there is dialogue <laughs> at the end of this presentation. So I am, I am so happy to... Um, to be here to share with you some of the things we have been doing um, over the last almost 20 years here at the university. And I'm, I'm indebted to the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine because I'll share with you some of the funding I've had from that, um, that group or that center there at NIH that has afforded us the opportunity to do what we're doing. Um, are there people in here who've had me just briefly comment on the CCAT, CSCAT story? I mean, if so, I, I well, sorry that I'll be repeating that and you'd have to hear it again. But how did this all come about at this very conservative university? Is that 
um, I used to direct the critical care program in the School of Nursing. And I did that, for, well, I actually back in this 72 when we started a nursing program, graduate program there. Then as we went through the years and uh, persons became more critically ill and we were trying to figure out ways to enhance comfort, et cetera, in these critical care units. It was uh, about 1989, 1990 that I said, we have got to do something about the fact that we're always touching people, but we're never, it's always procedural touch that we are pushing in something, pulling out something, putting on something. And I said, we need to enhance comfort. So I set about with a graduate student, and we went around to the um, nine adult critical care units. And anyone who didn't have an endotracheal tube in place or whose level of consciousness was um, such that we could interview them or talk to them briefly, we asked five questions. And one of those questions was, has anyone touched you in a way that you would say was comforting, caring touch since you've been in this critical care unit? We did this for 30 days. Sadly, I report that one man said to me, my back was killing me and my wife um, rubbed my back for me. And I said, oh my gosh, as I'm on the slippery slope of my career, I can't keep going like this. We've got to do something about this. So we set out to figure out how to bring in some comforting, caring touch into people in critical care units. Uh, and so we were going to introduce some soothing touch on whatever part of the body that wouldn't either have a line in it or have uh, some type of covering or dressing on it, etc. Well, it was about that time, now uh, maybe a year has gone by, and so then in 1992, the Office of Alternative Medicine, which is now a center, but the Office of Alternative Medicine at the university, at the NIH was established, and they sent out a call for two centers west of the Mississippi and two centers east of the Mississippi to be established. One was to be about cancer and other immune-related uh, problems, and then the other was going to be about pain, including the pain associated with cancer. So I said, oh my goodness, my entire professional career to this point has been about caring, comforting, touching, enhancing people during acute illnesses. We've got to do something about it. So I sort of deviated from what I was doing at the time, put in a grant application to NIH, and guess what? Look out for what you wish for and hope for because you might get something. And I got one of the early awards. Um, but it was only natural that, and I was the only nurse in the country who applied for this. Um, everyone else was physician, etc. And um, when the award, uh, Joe Jacobs, a pediatrician, was heading up the Office of Alternative Medicine at that time, and when it went, reviews at NIH go through two levels of review, a scientific review, and then more at an advisory level of whether or not the project that's proposed fits into the overall um, sort of program of research for a particular center or something. And so the advisory committee said to Joe Jacobs, my goodness, um, 
my goodness, you're not going to make an award like this to the University of Virginia. It's the most conservative university in this entire country. <laughs> well, he, he said, well, you know, I'm the scientist here, um, and I, I'm going to be directing things. It wasn't too long before Joe Jacobs actually resigned because he said he couldn't be manipulated by uh, a, an advisory council or, or whatnot. So anyway, he, he left there, and then they had an interim, and then um, Wayne Jonas came in as the director after that. Um, so our center got established, and you can see a circle down there. We were in good company with Harvard and Columbia and Kessler Institute in New Jersey, University of Maryland, and some others there that you can see. Um, and now that those centers have been increased in number, and again, we remain in good company. Um, one of the reasons I was at Darden, though, is because as the federal dollar gets um, tighter and tighter, and um, persons are going to foundations and to industries more, I'm looking for ways of enhancing and sustaining what I have started here back in 1993. Um, so actually, I've, I've told you some of this. Some of the, I just wanted to point out that some of the early monies that I got was uh, 1.6 million. That was the largest award that was given out originally. And then I got another award for 1.6 million in which we set up a, a, a training program. Um, currently, I, well, I've had funding in 2000 to 2006. Now I have funding again until 2011. And this is for pre and postdoctoral training as well as for the research. And then last year, I got um, a five-year award that would uh, permit me to continue to do the work that I was doing, and, um, and it's hence the reason I was at Darden, because one of the components of this recent award that I got was that I would and continue to look for ways to provide leadership in this field beyond what I was already doing. It's a, even though our center is based administratively in the School of Nursing, we are actually an interdisciplinary uh, center. And so we relate to all of these areas that you see there on the board. Very collaborative with all studies that we do. And one of the things that we're trying to do is to determine what's safe and what's not safe. We have no particular commitment to any particular product or to... Um, any other uh, intervention, but rather what works to enhance comfort, uh, decrease suffering from persons. Well, so our goal then is to uh, provide improved patient care uh, and then to do pre-doctoral and post-doctoral training. Now that pre-doctoral training, just to make it clear, to show again its interdisciplinary effect, is that if students are enrolled in interdisciplinary uh, programs at, for their PhD um, degree, and what we ask of them is that they do a CAM-related, a complementary and alternative-related uh, um, dissertation, and that they attend a few some sessions that we have in our Center for the Study of Complementary and Alternative Therapies. And then these students, these uh, pre-doctoral fellows, 
get stipends, uh, about $22,000 each year, and they can get up to three years of support. And then the postdoctoral fellows get stipends based on their level of uh, since their PhD degree was awarded or other related degrees. So we're trying to study the efficacy of various modalities. We're trying to do the training, and then we're trying to establish uh, collaborations across the university. What I want to do is to share with you um, about four or five projects that we completed over the last couple of years, and then to talk about some that we are in the process of carrying out or getting ready to implement. The first one I want to share with you has to do with magnets, Stat the static magnetic field versus pulsed magnetic fields. And so because persons, many people have trouble with carpal tunnel syndrome, um, and because there's not a lot that conventional medicine does with that outside of, of uh, sometimes surgical intervention, we were, we were trying to figure out what we might have to offer. And so we developed a study here in which we were trying to determine whether or not wearing a fitment, as you saw in that uh, uh, wrist-hand fitment, as you saw in the previous slide, for eight weeks would have an effect on some of the measurements we might take in some sophisticated equipment out at the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Center with Dr. D. Benedetta. Um, here you can see that um, on, the, uh, on your left here is, shows the, the extent of the magnetic field for anyone who's really interested in it, uh, when it's that fitment which has magnapreme threads woven through it. So the, thread, the magnetic field comes from those uh, magnapreme uh, threads that are woven into the very flexible fabric. And it's at the level of the skin, when it's right on the skin, it's producing about 35 uh, gauss uh, uh, there. And then if you, it, it, like any magnetic field, the farther away from the source of the magnetic field, the, the strength of the field decreases. Um, what we did, after these people wore these wrists, and by the way, this study was done like any, any strong study is done, is that there, we, some of those uh, wrist uh, device, those fitments, were magnetized and some weren't. Um, and we asked people not to play around with whether or not they were or they weren't uh, magnetic. Um, and so what we found after the people who wore these for eight weeks, what happened was that um, the motor nerve conduction values compared to those who were in the sham group was actually increased over that eight-week period. There was a decrease in the um, lateral nerve that goes up the um, ulnar of the arm, and that can the conduction there decreased over time. And then um, it wasn't statistically significant, although uh, in some other readings we did see that from um, baseline to the end of the eight-week study, there were some clinically important trends that were taking place. 
Both groups, that is the sham group and the magnetic group, reported decreases in pain, numbness, tingling, and uh, weakness that these are symptoms that are just generally uh, accompanied uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. We did not find any uh, statistically significant differences in the um, lateral sensory uh, radial nerve conduction between the two groups. And then we didn't really find over time, over the course of the two, uh, two months, we didn't see that there were any differences in the report of symptom severity, function, or feeling of well-being in these people. Now, I don't know whether any of you saw it, because I think it was reported in some of the university publications, but I've done some early on work with um, the Department of Biomedical Engineering and Tom Scalak. And Tom Scalak and a doctoral student there have demonstrated, and we have demonstrated in some other smaller studies too, that um, magnetic fields can decrease swelling and it can increase blood flow. And the way this seems to happen or to come about is that um, there's a, across the cell uh, wall membrane, there's a, a flux of calcium in and out of the uh, cell, across the cell wall membrane. And so hence, they do get a decrease in swelling. Improvement in vascular flow happens. And so it would stand to reason that inflammatory process could be decreased when you're increasing blood flow to an area. Uh, and then also, if it was edematous, swollen, it could easily be decreased, uh, this swelling that was there as well. So we concluded from this FITMIT study that um, the FITMIT itself may have some therapeutic effect in any time we know that we cuddle anything from a, a swaddling a baby to uh, any other part of the body, whether the device would have had any magnetic threads in it or not, just that support may have helped somewhat. Um, it may be helpful, and some people did find it very helpful in reducing, they had self-report of reducing their problems with their carpal tunnel syndrome. And then, of course, as we do in most studies, we say that given these findings, further research might be needed. One of the other studies that we've recently completed and are in the process of actually analyzing some of the data right now has to do with, a, this time, a pulsed magnetic field that is, um, was used to reduce the symptoms associated with rheumatoid arthritis. And the population we used were women who were postmenopausal. This study was actually funded by NIH and uh, NCAM. And the pad that this woman is laying on right now, this is the device that we use with the control box there to the side. And so the purpose here, again, was that we were trying to use these low-strength magne pulse magnetic fields to look at the, its effect on decreasing pain, fatigue, and the disease activity, the flares, et cetera, that sometimes accompany rheumatoid arthritis. We actually had um, three groups. We had a, a group that had the active pad, and then we had another group that the control box acted just like the field was going through, and then we had a usual care alone. Um, and there was double binding in this study, 
in a sense that we, the researchers, did not know which pad the participants had. Um, and we did not know it until all the data was collected and we broke the blind. We had George Gillies from the Department of Physics and Engineering to come over and to actually assess all of these pads. We, just, we didn't take just the manufacturer's word that some were magnetized and oh, some of those uh, control boxes would be functional. But rather, George checked those out for us. And um, so he was the only person who knew which uh, pads were active and which were sham until we broke the blind. So th these people laid on these pads um, eight minutes twice a day over a course of 12 weeks. And again, uh, the pads were identical. The sham looked just like the other one. The, the magnetic field is very low. What we've shown is that it is the low magnetic field that tends to be more effective than just, you know, more in this instance is not always better. Um, the conclusion here that we've drawn out of the data that we've analyzed so far is that, um, that the pain in these people that these women reported decreased over time in the active group compared to the sham and the usual care alone group. Also, we, um, the sleep disturbances, they wore an actograph, which is a wristwatch-like device that rec really records um, activity when one is asleep. And so um, that would give us some objective data. And then, of course, we had subjective data about how one thought they were sleeping. And that did not differ between the two groups over time, either on their self-report of sleep or upon their... Um, the data we got from the actographs. Uh, functional status, that is how these women were able to get about, etc. Um, in those who were in the active group did demonstrate a trend. It wasn't statistically um, significant, but it was, there was a trend toward improvement compared to the sham group and to the uh, usual care alone group. Um, the next study I will just mention to you is that uh, we use, well, let's, a problem that is, is major and that, again, it's, it's a mechanical problem that as we get older, our knees hurt more, um, we lose the cartilage, et cetera, in them. And so we took uh, persons who were um, 65 years and older and who had at least one knee uh, severely involved with osteoarthritis. And we use this device that you see here in this picture, uh, which is a, a non-invasive, interactive sort of neurostimulation device. It provides both biofeedback as to the level of activity that's going on in the, um, in the, under the skin that you are assessing, as well as you can then deliver electrical stimulation to the uh, area that you're working. We were again trying to determine whether or not using this device would, tend, would give us an improvement in uh, pain and uh, functionality over the period of time. So it was, um, we, we uh, had these people to come into the clinical trials unit out there just 
on 29 at uh, 1 Morton Drive. It was easy parking, easy access, which is important for older people who have um, mobility problems. The first three weeks of the study, we used three treatments. The second two weeks of the study, they got um, two treatments a week. And then the, the actually the um, final two weeks, they only got one treatment a week. Now what we sh showed was that clinically important differences in pain and knee function was evident in those who were treated with the active device. We had two people who administered all of the devices. Now they could, the, the therapist delivering these treatments had to know whether to use your sham device or the other device, the active device, but the recipients of the treatments did not know whether they were getting the sham treatment or the active treatment. And of course the improvements that we saw in the report of pain and increased functionality, movement, movement etc., occurred during those weeks in which the treatments were more intense. And so we do also recognize, however, that just a person, someone else being involved in your in administering the treatment could have some effect, some therapeutic effect. What we're trying to do now, this company is working with us to develop a, a device that people can use at home, which will remove the therapist effect. They could also do these treatments intensively over the course of uh, the, the weeks, and they wouldn't be limited to a eight-week study with a 12-week follow-up. People really liked it, and they did not, if, when you're suffering and can't get relief, they did not object to coming in three times a week to get these treatments uh, that generally lasted anywhere from 20 to 30 to 40 minutes. And then, of course, they had travel time to get there. Um, another study that we did recently um, had to do with the use of massage in uh, women undergoing abdominal uh, surgery for removal of malignant lesions. And here we also used a physiotome device. We had some, we collaborated with Dr. Uh, Laurel Rice and some other physicians there out of the um, oncolo surgical oncology department. And here again, we were trying to see if we could improve, um, their, decrease their pain, decrease the need for post-operative analgesics, uh, analgesics, so that they wouldn't, they'd be able to be more mobile more quickly. Um, we randomized the people, these women. We enrolled actually 147. We uh, ended up actually um, uh, putting into the two, the three groups. Um, 124, so there was a massage group of physiotones in which the, the physiotones is a mild vibration between 27 and 113 hertz that uh, was the person could troll on her bed. The woman was taken off of the OR table, put onto her uh, bed that she would be staying in the rest of the hospital and stay, and then there was a control box that she would use to turn off and on those uh, mild vibrations. And then we took some measures on the day of surgery, the day, first day after surgery and day two after surgery. We were looking at whether or not pain decreased, their anxiety was improved, or their distress, and whether or not it would have an effect on blood pressure. 
And um, what we found that, of course, the massage group did best of all. I mean, there's some very detailed kinds of findings here. But compared to uh, the physio tones and the usual care, whether we looked at it on day one, two, or, or operative day, or day one or two following the surgery, the ma massage actually turned out to be better in uh, improving sensory pain. That is, how much does it really hurt? So these women had ha all had abdominal sur surgical incisions. And um, so we, uh, we, but after controlling those for, for multiple outcomes, we really didn't find significant differences across the treatment days between the groups. Um, but if we just looked at the data without con making certain controls, um, we did find those other things that I just talked about. And so I think that what this study did more for the image of University Hospital than perhaps anything else. Massage, touch, et cetera, many of us like that. There are a few, admittedly, who don't want to be touched. Um, but uh, physicians have told me that they had a family member or something in this study and that all they talked about if they were in the massage group was the nightly massage that they got. Um, they didn't talk about how wonderful the surgeon was or how great the nurses were or anything, but they talked about that massage intervention and that they looked forward to it every evening. We, we administered them always about the same time, right after visiting hours uh, around 8 o'clock in the evening. Now, I want to share with you a few of the good uh, studies that we're doing right now. And again, we're doing another massage study because we know that many people like this. Also, we know that certain populations which medicine is trying to treat, um, sometimes our treatment is worse <laughs> than, than sometimes the outcomes or that there's a lot of suffering and discomfort and pain that goes on during the course of therapy. We started out uh, with a study funded by the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, um, to look at uh, persons who were undergoing autologous stem cell transplants uh, because these were people who had reached sort of the end of their blood cancer problem that they had. And so they were then going to say, okay, they were going to come here and get a transplant so that an autologous meaning that they were going to take out some of their own blood and marrow and stuff and then, you know, treat it and treat the person and then give it back to them. Well, we got nine patients into the study and we got a new um, chair of the Department uh, uh, of uh, Medical Oncology and it wasn't too long before the transplant unit was closed. Well. I said, what are we going to do? Well, I talked to NIH, and they actually let us change our population. They said, go to another population that's similar. So hence, we have now enrolled about uh, 28 people who are, un who are coming here to the university with acute myeloid leukemia. Now, this the major difference between uh, persons who've un who have non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma, et cetera, and coming for a transplant is that these people have had their diagnosis for a number of, of, of years in some instances, but yet just can't get them into a remission. So they were going to then go for a transplant. Well, 
Persons with acute myeloid leukemia, oftentimes you'll walk into the oncologist's office and blood work is done, et cetera, and the, when it comes back, or the physician may then call you back in a few weeks and say, oh my goodness, I'd like for you to come back in. We need to really look about things and talk about some treatment. So the diagnosis is very acute. The person just knows they've been feeling very lousy, not able to walk to the mailbox or to go to the grocery store and push a cart around, et cetera. So um, this, this group, we're trying to look at the immediate effects of, of giving these people who are undergoing this sort of gosh awful treatment. It's similar to persons un with cancer go undergoing chemotherapy, but the regimes that these people undergo uh, is just very fatiguing, it's nauseating, it's, it's just very unpleasant. They're very uncomfortable during the course of this. And so uh, the, the medical oncologists say to me, Anne, if you've got anything to offer these people to help offset some of the problems that I'm creating for them with this medical therapy, please, yes, I'm willing to work with you on this. Um, and so... Now, the findings, I'll, I'll just share with you quickly, uh, the findings of the nine people that had the other, the acute, were undergoing acute, uh, I mean, undergoing um, autologous stem cell transplant. These nine people saw an immediate decrease in the effects of their stress. Their, they reported increased relaxation and increased comfort. Their cumulative effect of the massage uh, was not really seen. Um, and those who reported, who, who were in the massage group versus those in a control group, reported lower anxiety scores and lower uh, pain, pain, affective pain scores, meaning how much the pain was really bothering them during their hospitalization as compared to those who were just getting usual care alone. I want to just share a couple of, of, of words here about the participants and the benefits they said about the massage while they were undergoing this this you know seven week very rigorous treatment. Um, one man after had t told us that he had so much swelling, etc., in his feet and in his hands that it was very hard for him to even be mobile with movement because he couldn't tell where his feet were even being placed, and so it was actually rather unsafe. His hands were so edematous, et cetera, that his wife had to buy him a huge coffee mug um, to, so that he could sort of grasp onto it and, and hold it so that he could drink him for himself. And um, we started giving him the massages, and he said to us, after about three massages, this is the first time I've been able to feel my fingers in six months. I, can, I now feel that I can walk more safely because I, can, I have a better idea where I'm placing my feet. Some of the swelling, the edema was going down. A mobilization of fluid. One woman, came, she was going through a series of slides and she, I mean going through a, a series of treatments, she came in, and of course we have everybody wearing these ID bands so that when we give them blood products, et cetera, we can double check for safety, et cetera. And uh, we, we're never supposed to cut them off or anything. But the, it was so 
bound into her arm when she came in. We were giving, she was, she was just visiting, she was staying here, not in the hospital per se, but close by so she could get these treatments. And so the, um, one of the nurses who's Audra Snyder, who is the um, massage coordinator for this study, said to this woman, as soon as I give you a massage, I'll take you, I'll actually drive you back to the clinic and we'll get the, your band changed. Well, she put the woman on the massage table, gave her the massage, and of course worked some to help mobilize some of that fluid back into the body. The woman got off this massage table after an hour and she said, oh my goodness, look, we don't have to go back. It had decrease the swelling, et cetera, in that arm to that extent. And then, of course, other people, and these people, too, reported increased relaxation, increased comfort, and um, decreased distress following that. Um, we did an inter uh, interview uh, study to help us get some more information about people who have another major problem for which conventional medicine uh, struggles to treat, and that is hepatitis C virus. Um, as you know, that's one of the uh, severe viruses, and it attacks the liver, etc. Um, and so we were, uh, and the, the conventional therapy today is pegylated uh, interferon alpha with a drug called ravivarin, and about 40% of the people who are treated with this respond. The others who take it don't respond, and conventional medicine just says, we don't know what to do. The, the normal treatment phase is about 48 weeks for, the, say, for a course of treatment. Some people, when they get to the end of that treatment, say, oh my God, I am not going back through another phase of this. I just can't do it. Some people have such severe reactions to it that they can't. Uh, can't take in another round of it. So we were trying to figure out what to do here. So we interviewed them using some 14 open-ended questions, et cetera. And um, we looked at some themes. We interviewed, actually out of our own clinic here, 24 persons who met our criteria. Um, they had been uh, diagnosed about nine and a half years before that. Some of them had gone through only, uh, or the mean av or average of their treatments had been about 47 weeks on conventional medical therapy. And then some of them, the mean average time off of conventional medical therapy was about three and a half years. Now, during the course of the time when these people are off any kind of conventional therapy, the disease is still there and it's working away. It's, um, it leads initially to, you know, goes through stage one, two, and three of cirrhosis of the liver, and then on to hepatocellular carcinoma, cancer of the liver. So these people are obviously interested in some mode of, of help. Um, and so we think that the information we got from this particular study is going to tell us something about the next study. And I'm going to tell you only about one more study, and then I want to stop and have some type of dialogue with you. Um, the other thing that we are looking at, because conventional medicine uh, is having a, a problem dealing with these people and we don't have any other therapy yet for them, is that we are looking at a Japanese herbal product. It's a combination of seven herbs. We have gotten FDA approval. I will tell you, 
that that was took me 18 months to do that, but um, even people here at the university have applauded that. Um, I think I'm about the only nurse who's ever done that. Even the FDA said to me after we got an IND number, new investigational drug number, is that they said, well, if you want another career, you could advise people on how to go about this process. So I thought, yay. Um, but we know that a large number of people have this problem. Um, I've, I've already told you that many of them just go on to develop cirrhosis of the liver, and then another 5% go on to develop uh, ca cancer of the liver. Um, what we, uh, this, this heading on this says significance of hepatitis, and it really should say objectives for our study. We're, looking, we're going, to, going to test. We wanted to test this for one year because conventional therapy using conventional, the conventional drug is about 48 weeks to 52 weeks, up to a year. We said we wanted to go in and do this for a year. FDA says, no, you've got to start with a safety study. We're going to only let you do this for 12 weeks. And I did argue with them to no end, but they won. Um, and so we're going to look at the effect that this has on um, CD4 and CD8 T-cell counts. We're going to look at reducing viral load, and we, we believe that these 12 weeks we will be able to see some improvement in liver enzymes uh, as well. Uh, there's also a, a laboratory component of this that we're going to do in actually uh, a lab here at the University of Virginia. Uh, and we're going to use uh, some replicons of the hepatitis C virus, etc. Dr. Christine Rudy, who works in Dr. Timothy Pruitt's laboratory, is going to work with us on that. Another indication of collaboration. Again, the, the drugs that, I mean, the, the products that are in here, the herbal products that are in here are plebarium root, uh, panella uh, tuber root, or scuderella root, uh, jujube root, ginseng, and um, glyc glyceride that is licorice, and then ginger uh, rhizomes. Now, it, it, the, patella, uh, the uh, panella tuber, when you see ephedrine there, the FDA went wild. Well, it is only 0.002%. We spent $1,000 sending this stuff off to a lab to have it analyzed, and they say it's not there. It's just not there. Well, I called the person who is head of the supplement division of the U.S. Pharmacopeia and told him what I was trying to do. And he said, Ann, there wouldn't be any there. There just wouldn't be any there because the processing that this goes through, and he said, the FDA people shouldn't know that. <laughs> but anyway, um, we've finally gotten this approved, and we're hoping to, we're working on getting um, the product from the supplier right now. And I'm going to stop at that and um, ask if you have some questions or comments or something that you'd like to make. This seven herbal formula well, actually, it, it's combined. This formula is made under pharma, uh, pharmacological 
uh, and pharmaceutical standards, good manufacturing standards in Japan. And it's shipped to a company, US, uh, Hanzo USA in Arizona. And then they are going to provide it to us, both the active product and the um, inactive product in capsule form. Oh yes, it's been, it's been used in Japan. And of course, the, the Japanese, 80% of physicians treating liver problems in, the, in Japan use this. Um, so it's, but here in the States, you know, we have to do our own thing to show that it works or it doesn't work or it's safe or it's not safe. Well, one, the way it came about, first of all, we know, know through our Center for a Digestive Health here at the university that they are struggling with trying to figure out how to handle people who have chronic hepatitis C and when they fail conventional therapy, what else is there to offer them? Well, I had a naturopathic physician who came uh, to my center and I said to him, Jason, um, you know, some population, we need, we need to look at some things we might be able to address in some, where conventional medicine is, is uh, struggling at this point to provide okay. And so it was my uh, naturopathic physician who was in a postdoctoral position with me. He had one of my, quote, slots in the center there for study with us. And so um, we started like that. Well, let's see, okay, you and then you, okay? Um, Okay, I had a bunch of slides in there to address that. Um, let me go back to the staff. It's myself and Cheryl Bergenon, who is a, a, mostly does all the statistical work for us. And um, then I have, um, th there's a, a research assistant professor, Kim Ennis, with us. And then she has employed a person to work on one of her uh, studies with her, Terry Self, who went through our program as a, uh, and got a PhD degree here with us. She's also a doctor of chiropractic. Um, and then that's pretty much the core staff. Oh, and Audra Snyder, who took her PhD with me, she is, uh, does some work with us now, about a quarter time work with us. And then we have these pre-doctoral and post-doctoral uh, fellows who are working with us. Now, how do we decide what to do, what to study? Well, um, we look again at where, where are the needs the greatest? What is conventional medicine having uh, you know, the most difficulty with? And what modality in complementary and alternative medicine shows any kind of promise that might be helpful? That's one of the things that drives us. Another one is whether or not we have the expertise to do something. And then finally, I will tell you, the almighty dollar drives us in part where we can get funding and support. Um, we're putting it, we just, just about three weeks ago, put in a study to the Department of Defense. Now, I've done two other studies with the Department of Defense, but I sort of backed off of it. But 
They came out because we have all these young men and women coming back from Iran and Iraq who have traumatic brain injury. And again, you know, what do we do? Um, so we are actually, you have designed a study and submitted it. We hope it'll get funded. We'll know by September that it's so urgent. They're giving quick turnaround on this. Usually takes about a year to learn whether you're going to get any funding on something. But um, we will, we are going to use uh, a CAM practitioner, John Alton. Some of you may know him. He is here in the, in the Charlottesville area. He, um, is an expert and has written a book on the use of external Qigong. I mean, internal, internal as opposed to external Qigong. And we're going to do uh, two weeks of intensive sessions, individual sessions with these people. And then we are going to uh, bring them for um, eight weeks into um, uh, group, small group sessions or dyads as a part of their gym experience. Now, you, some of you may not know that here in Charlottesville, there, down just below the Martha Jefferson Hospital, the, actually the federal government and some Department of Defense, et cetera, have uh, set up community-based rehabilitation clinics across the country. We have one right here. I did not know that until I started investigating about this study. So uh, people, uh, the soldiers, service members are shipped from all over the country if they want to undergo these community-based um, rehabilitation programs. They live in some houses along Grove Avenue down there. They have something they call their clubhouse. They don't call it a clinic or anything, but they are getting you know, the kind of counseling, they're getting testing, et cetera, and we hope to introduce this, this external Qigong, which we have, there's some evidence that it improves balance, it can improve cognitive function, et cetera, uh, I didn't put that slide in there, but it, ha it shows there is evidence that there is some potential. We, did, we are calling it reflective exercise versus Qigong. You can imagine that these 20-year-old service members think, what is this woman thinking about? Uh, so, and, and, and John calls it reflective exercise even in his, his book because there's a lot of deep breathing, et cetera, that goes into it. And it's, a, it's a eight sessions, intensive sessions, and so he's gonna give them all individual sessions over that first two weeks, and then we'll move into some small dyads. We won't do, try to do large groups because we know that they feed on one another about, you know, you're not gonna do that, are you? <laughs> but anyway, but thanks, that's a good question. Thank you. Rather than to talk in depth about any one study, I tried to do a broad sweep so you could get a feel of some of the things that we were doing. <laughs>